All right, our ushers are getting ready to bring the note sheets, pencils, and Bibles. So if you need any of those things, please make sure to indicate that by raising your hand so we can bring them to you. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there in preparation of our reading together and our study this morning, we are grateful for the Word of God. What a sure foundation we have in Jesus Christ that He provides for us this blessed tribute to His will, that we can see the decrees of God written down for us, that we don't have to guess and theorize about what God desires for his people that we know according to what he has revealed to us what he desires for his church and how his people are supposed to live so we are grateful uh, for that wonderful guide that is always at the center of our ministry here at First Family Church the word of God tells us how to love the Lord tells us how to live and it tells us the great joy that we are to have uh, as he fulfills his promises in our lives as he always does so we want to be very careful this morning not to cut the book of 1 Corinthians up into bite-sized pieces that are so small that we lose track of the big picture of the message or lose sight of our immediate context, the things that we have been studying leading up to the part that we will look at in depth today. So last week, front and center in Paul's communication was the importance of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul is so intent to see lost people hear about the good news of Jesus Christ and have the chance to respond to that, that he's willing to forgo his own freedoms. He's willing to lay to the side his own rights if it will help him to tell others about Jesus and possibly see them one to the Lord. So he's a willing to adapt himself to those who are Greek. He adapts some of their mannerisms. He talks like they talk. He tries to blend into their culture to a degree so that he might connect with them. To those who are under the law, he becomes like those who are under the law and yet not taking the yoke of the law upon himself. He's willing to adapt so that he might be a better spokesperson testifying to the glory of Jesus Christ, his Lord. Now with this kind of self-sacrifice in mind, the passage that we're going to meditate on today digs deeper into that idea of putting the, the, the gospel at the forefront of our lives that we might reach out to others who do not know him. In verse 24 through 27, Paul's going to use imagery, and it's imagery from the athletic world, in order to help us understand how to live self-controlled lives, lives that are marked by a willingness to lay oneself down for the well-being of someone else and for the spread of the gospel. Now, when we began our study in 1 Corinthians, I pointed out some of the geographical significance of the city of Corinth. Corinth was strategically placed in a very high traffic area where commerce and trade was occurring at a, a very healthy rate. And so if you look at the map that we've got there on the screen, you'll see that between the Aegean and the Ionian Seas was an isthmus of land, a small land bridge, uh, that became a pivotal uh, place in the Roman Empire for the transportation of goods. Ships that did not want to venture southward through an area of great storms and frequent shipwrecks uh, would instead bring their ships up into the southern port of Corinth and then have the ships literally dry portaged up across that small uh, strip of land and into the calmer seas of the Aegean. Uh, home to the second largest athletic exhibition in the Roman Empire, Corinth housed the Isthmian Games, which, was Paul, um, which Paul was likely present for during the spring of 51 AD when he was helping to start the church in Corinth. These Olympic-style games were held in an open area just outside of the city proper. Where they held the games, there were no permanent dwelling structures built as of the writing of 
the letter to the Corinthians. And what that means is that someone like Paul, whose secondary skill set, other than preaching the gospel, was building tents and dwelling places, would have had a, a very beneficial set of skills to help out during a time like the Isthmian Games. He very likely was involved with building some of the tents that were used to house the athletes and people who traveled from all around to compete in these contests of skill, strength, and speed. The six phases of competition in the Isthmian Games included racing, foot racing, long distance and short, wrestling, jumping and leaping, boxing, hurling the javelin, and throwing the discus. These were all important parts of this competition. So by drawing a parallel between the self-control that a successful athlete must exhibit and the self-control that, that somebody who has given to their, their lives to Jesus Christ must exhibit, Paul taps into the cultural conscience of the people of this church. Corinth is a sports market, and its residents are very familiar with the demands of competitive life. And so Paul is going to take advantage of that knowledge that they have so they might better understand their faith in Jesus. With that in mind, let us read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to the end, as next week we will be embarking in chapter 10. So starting with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul starts this section off with a rhetorical question that has gotten a, a lot of use in this letter so far. And I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but he asks the Corinthian believers in this small section, he says, do you not know? This is the tenth and final time that Paul uses that exact phrase throughout this letter. Ten different times he asks the Corinthians, do you not know? Knowledge, of course, is one of the key themes that Paul is interested in addressing in this letter, particularly how a worldly kind of knowledge has the dangerous potential to puff up one's ego and to hinder their true discipleship. And so this phrase, do you not know, carries some connotations with it. It implies that these Corinthians to whom Paul is speaking with, they should already know some of these things that he's trying to tell them, at least to a degree. They should be aware of the need and the importance of personal discipline. The Corinthians, as we have seen, thought that they knew a lot. They boast often of their wisdom. There is a letter that we do not have as the church that Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians that indicates they wrote back to him pushing back against some of his direction and instruction and communicating to Paul a number of their own personal doctrines that they had come to cling to. They've developed a number of these pithy sayings, small catchphrases that sum up their beliefs and the way that they live those beliefs out in common practice. They've also shown a low regard for apostolic instruction, at least for Paul's. We know that they have challenged his authority and they have pushed back on whether he has the right to tell them as a church how to conduct themselves. Do you remember that in chapter 3, Paul said that he wished to address them as spiritually mature people, but he could not. 
For they were forgetting even some of the elementary principles of discipleship that should have been second nature to them by now. He hoped to transition these people in a way from milk, like an infant would drink, to solid foods, as a young child would begin to enjoy. But they're still behaving like spiritual infants. And so Paul's motivated to show his brothers and sisters in Corinth that they cannot afford to remain in this immature state. Instead, they should strive to live according to the wisdom and the commands that have been entrusted to them, first by the apostles who founded the church, and now by the elders who are trying to lead it in a faithful way. The phrase, do you not know, also suggests that Paul is determined to help his friends know. He's not content at their ignorance. Do you not know this, he explains? If not, then let me show you. See, he's not just admonishing them. He's not just trying to make them feel bad. He's urging them on to something greater. He desires their growth. He wants their development and prays for it. So even if they must hear the truth again and again and again, Paul's willing to take the time to tell it to them. Now, what specifically did they need to know about given Paul's use of the athletic metaphor? They needed to know the importance of self-control. The importance of self-control. One of the most critical spiritual fruits that a Christian can bear. These recently converted Christians had a very independent mentality. This mentality caused them to stretch the usefulness of their liberty beyond their own grasp of godliness. In other words, they have much freedom in Christ. They have much freedom as Roman citizens. But they're using that freedom to do themselves and to do others harm rather than good. One of the relevant aspects of life that this bad habit has caused the Corinthian problems is the consumption of food, how they eat, and how they join together in meals. So there are two distinct layers to this social challenge, and we've, we've learned through a lot of this. So this will be somewhat in review for those who were not with us earlier. First of all, the question was raised, should a Christian eat meat that had been sold in the market? Because that meat may or may not have been offered as a sacrifice to a false god at some point. There were many different temples in the city of Corinth. Many, many of these temples were designated to the pagan gods of the Roman Empire, like Apollos, Poseidon, and Aphrodite. And so very frequently people would bring sacrifices, lambs, goats, and bulls, and oxen, to these different temples where they would offer those sacrifices up the, the Israelites were not the only ones who practiced that kind of worship, that worshipful giving. They would offer up these sacrifices. And then these sacrifices, some of that would go to the, the running of the temple, the feeding of their priests and priestesses. But then the remaining meat would then be sold in the market at butcher shops to anybody who just needed to feed their families. So there was question marks. Was it okay to eat this meat if it had been offered in a sacrifice to some foreign and false god? Now that first question has a clear answer from Paul one with an important suggestion tacked to it. First of all, both from the argument that Paul has already made and the conclusions that he's going to draw about that argument in a little bit in chapter 10, we see that a believer in Corinth was free to eat whatever was put before them without question. Since there really is only one true God, they don't have to worry that the meat itself, sacrificed to a false God, an empty God, might do them harm. So that meat's not poisonous, it doesn't defile their holiness in some way. He reminded them of Christ's teaching that wickedness comes from within a man. It's not the things outside of us that comes in that defiles us. It's our wickedness inside. Now, there's an exception to that freedom. Eat whatever's put in front of you, except 
Every believer must consider whether his eating might cause a weaker brother or sister in the faith to stumble. If somebody with less knowledge than that mature believer might see them eating that meat and think, wow, I used to worship Aphrodite and I know that meat came from the temple of Aphrodite. Does that mean it's now okay for us to worship Jesus and also that goddess of love? I'm confused. I don't know what to do. If, if there is any chance that our freedom and the expression of it might cause a weak brother and sister to go back to a wicked way of worshiping a false god, then we should forego the right to enjoy that meat. Instead, we should, we should deny the opportunity to eat it for the sake of our weaker brother. So that's the first challenge, this meat that was served in the marketplace. But there's a second layer to the challenge. Does a Christian have the freedom to participate in the various pagan festivals that were part and parcel of the culture in Corinth? These festivals were thrown throughout the year in honor of these false Roman gods. And they were so prolific. They were spread out so far in the culture that almost everybody went to these things. And so the second question requires more pastoral confrontation from Paul because at these festivals, yes, there, were, there was feasts, there was meals served. It was almost like the restaurant of the city. These festivals would produce all this food and people would go and they would get these, these special meals. But there was also quite a bit of revelry and drunkenness and sexual immorality at these festivals. And in these festivals, though the gods that they exalted were false gods and not real gods, gods like Aphrodite and Poseidon and Apollos, those gods were often used to create such confusion in the minds of true believers that they began to split their allegiance between God and those of the Roman system of worship. So many of the Corinthians were reluctant to leave behind this popular social activity. They loved those festivals. And they had argued against Paul, insisting that they were free in Christ to participate in them still. And their justification for being a part of those festivals? Those gods aren't even real. An idol has no real existence. And so it's fine for us to go. There is no God but one. But the spiritual warfare behind the deception of false gods is real. And the temptations that were a part of these festivals could lead those believers into real sin. So the Corinthians think they need more freedom. But Paul is trying to help them to see what they need is more self-control. They need better biblical discipline. And so as a master teacher, Paul draws attention to something they obviously know, these athletic events, to get a point across about something that they don't really understand properly. Hence the reference to these Isthmian games. Now when you use a metaphor, you are typically zeroing in on one very specific parallel that's going to shed great light on something that you need to understand better. There is usually one driving point. Now we can make the mistake of expecting a metaphor to be the full explanation of the original idea it comes to represent. While a metaphor is useful for comparison, we have to keep in mind that it is not intended to offer a comprehensive analysis of the thing that it is symbolic of. A metaphor is comparing some specific detail that is shared between two things that are otherwise not the same. So, the Christian life is not a competition. While Paul is going to use competitive language here, he is not pitting believer versus believer, saying there's one prize, let's see who's the best Christian. Whoever wins is going to get it. The holiest of you is going to get the wreath. That's not what he's trying to communicate here. We would be trying to press the metaphor too far if we started to think that way. 
It is, it's almost like how Jesus described the people of, of, of God as sheep, right? He called them sheep, and he described himself as a good shepherd. Now, this comparison is useful to us. That metaphor shows us how lost we are without proper guidance and wisdom over us. That metaphor does not intend to suggest that we are somehow little wool factories for the Lord, that there's some product that we produce. It does not suggest that we can be made into delicious lamb chops. That would be stretching the metaphor too far, right? The metaphor does not downgrade man to the state of animals or deny that he bears the image of God. None of that is what Christ intended when he shared that metaphor. Specifically, we need a shepherd. And where do we get that from? Jesus explicitly explains what the metaphor is supposed to describe. So it would be dangerous for us to go outside of the boundaries of what he describes to us. We want to know what the original author intended by what he said in the metaphors that he used. And so the primary reason, friends, for Paul's metaphor here is that the Christian needs to exercise self-control. Any other conclusion that we make in regards to this metaphor should be linked to this teaching on self-control. It should be subservient to it. So in verse 24 again, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, in other words, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. So here Paul is instructing his brothers and sisters how they should run. They should run in such a way that they might receive the prize. Run as one who is intent not only on finishing, but on finishing well. Run with purpose. Run with direction. Run in such a way that your efforts are not wasted, that every bit of your energy is contributing to the attainment of that important goal. And verse 25 indicates that self-control extends beyond the race itself. Where does an athlete exercise self-control? They exercise self-control in all things. In all things. Whether he is on the track or not, if he's serious about competing, he has to consider how every facet of his life might impact that competition. So he doesn't just think about the race. He thinks about his diet. Everything that he eats and consumes leading up to his race. Is he eating a whole bunch of garbage, a whole bunch of food that's going to make him sluggish and slow, the kinds of sugars that will burn off quickly, but then leave you feeling almost hungover and in need of more energy? Is that what he eats? No, he eats things that are good, things that will set him up for success and victory. He considers his sleep, how he gets rest so that his body is not constantly worn down so that when it's time for the race, he has no energy to, to exert in, in competition. He must get the rest that he needs. He considers the equipment that he uses, the kind of shoes that he puts on his feet, the kind of clothes that he wears. He considers the people that he trains with. Is he running alongside other people that are going to push him and make him strive for more? Or is he running with people who aren't very disciplined? People who see running as a hobby, but they're not really in it for the prize. Nothing in the life of the athlete is exempt. He must be willing to exercise self-control in all facets of his being. So too, does the Christian need to consider how faith in Christ is not something that we minor in? We don't major in personal freedom and minor in Christ. If you've 
been in college before, you know that you have the opportunity to kind of select which path you intend to go down. And, and many students will major in one category. Maybe they'll major in English literature or they'll major in psychology. If they really you know, want to struggle to get a job, they'll major in psychology. You know, and some of you know what I'm talking about. But they'll, they'll minor in something else. They'll minor in guitar. They'll minor in communications. Or they'll minor in, in, in something that they have an interest in, but they don't really expect that to be their career path. And a lot of people think of Christ that way. Their life is primarily about their interests and secondarily about the glory of Jesus who bled and died to redeem them from their sin and to rescue them out of eternal damnation and hell. What should be the major and what should be the minor? Christ should be the major. We should put him first in all things. That is part of the imagery of baptism. In just a few weeks, we'll probably be having a baptismal service here as we have several people candidating for new membership here at the, at the church, which is a blessing to our hearts. Once we have been saved by Jesus, we are to be immersed in the waters of baptism. And this is a visual image of what is happening in our lives. Now, we don't sprinkle people because the testimony of the New Testament shows us that those who were baptized were immersed in the water. And it coincides with what is going on. Christ is not just a little sprinkle of flavor of Christianity into your life. You are being immersed in it. Your old life of sin and rebellion to God is being laid to rest in the grave. It is being put to death. And as you come out of the waters of baptism, you are coming out of those waters fully immersed in the Holy Spirit, ready for a new life before you. Now, you don't get the Spirit at baptism, but this is an image that shows the world that you now belong to Christ. And you are heart, mind, soul, and strength His. It should extend, therefore, your belief in Christ should extend to all areas of your life. It should extend to your career choice, where you get a job, how you work, the ways that you support your family. You should consider how those jobs might glorify the Lord or give you opportunity to worship Him the way that you have been called to do so. Can a Christian be a musician and not be a Christian musician? I mean, even if their subject matter is not always about the church, even if they're not writing worship songs, they should be careful that their attitude, their action, and the way that they carry themselves is as a Christian should. That they can't just turn off their faith while they're in the industry, and then when they're done earning their paycheck, okay, now I'm going to turn my godliness back on. We should all be thinking about how Christ impacts the way that we work. It should extend to our relationships with other people, our evangelism to those who are lost. Do we look at our new friendships as, as a benefit to us only? Or do we see our new relationships, the people we run into and start to develop a connection to, as a way that God might be opening up a door for us to share the truth of His victory and the importance of faith in Him above all else? It should... It should affect the way that we get married and who we should join our lives to in the covenant of marriage. It should affect the way we deal with conflict and offense from others, right? If we are Christians, we don't handle conflict like the world handles conflicts now. We're not always out for ours. We're out for the grace of God to be exemplified in our lives. So we don't take each other to court, right? That's what the scriptures taught us a couple of chapters ago. And, and we don't get easily offended by one another, but we let love cover things. We look to the word for direction on how we overcome offenses and, and how to 
redeem relationships that have been broken by sin. Our relationship with Christ should extend to our resources and how we deal with our money, how we spend our time, how we use the skills and abilities that God has given to us. Are we using them only for our own blessing and benefit? Or are we thinking, Lord, you have made me with this ability and this talent. You have given me this this open amount of time in my life. I want to use this for your glory. I want to use this for your kingdom. It should extend deep down into even our thoughts, friends. Let me ask you this question. Can Jesus Christ be the king of your heart and have no dominion in your mind? Is that possible? No, it is not. If Jesus is your king, if he rules your heart, then he rules your thoughts as well. We submit even our thoughts to the Lord God, grateful that he directs our thoughts, grateful that he shows us that that purity of thought and wisdom that comes from above is superior in all ways to the wisdom that is available here. So let us be disciplined and careful about the way that we spend our time and our life and our resources, knowing that this should all reflect our desire to exalt the God who saved us. Some of you are Giants fans in here, and uh, the Giants are doing all right this year, so I can't bag on them too much. But I can bag on what happened in 2017, so we're going to look back a little bit. You had a a really great pitcher. You know, his name was Madison Bumgarner. You remember him? Real cool guy. I I love interviews with him. He's pretty honest, pretty straightforward. He's a good old boy. Professional athlete, excellent pitcher. Uh, Did amazing things for the Giants in their World Series runs that are getting farther and farther in the rearview mirror. But back then, he was really good. And in 2017... On an off day in April, so the season had just gotten going, right? And on an off day in April, Madison was riding a dirt bike that he had rented. He fell off the dirt bike, he injured his shoulder, and he spent the next three months of the season on injured reserve. His team is struggling, they're trying to do well, they're battling, and because he rode that dirt bike on a little joyride, his team had to go without his skills, and it did not turn out well for them, right? And if you followed Madison Bumgarner's, Bumgarner's career, he's never quite been the superpower that he was before that accident. He was not putting the competition first in his mind. And I'm not saying that he should have. Baseball is, when you think about it, a trivial thing. It's a child's game, so we shouldn't make it too important to ourselves. But when it comes to Christianity, we should do nothing that jeopardizes our service to the king. We should not be willing to engage in any kind of recreational fun or restful activity if that activity is going to put us in sin, if that activity is going to bombard us with temptation or ruin the testimony that we have for Christ. As followers of Jesus, there is a prize for which we are running. And it isn't just a trophy. What is this prize that we want? It isn't accolades. It isn't better blessings from God. Verse 918 Paul hints at what this prize might be. He says that one of his goals is that he would be able to preach the gospel free of charge to the church. He didn't want to be a burden to the church. He loved being able to minister to Jesus without receiving anything back. So that's kind of his personal prize. In verse 22, his goal is that by faithfulness, he might by all means win some to Christ, right? By giving up some of his freedoms and adjusting to the culture around him, he might have a better voice to those who need to hear about Jesus. But beyond those two things is something even greater. The greatest prize for which he strives is faithfulness to his calling in Christ. If you will flip to Philippians uh, chapter 3, it's not far from 1 Corinthians. 
I think there's a passage here in chapter 3 that sums up in a very uh, condensed way what the prize of the Christian is. I love this verse, and whenever I begin to get off track and become overwhelmed or distracted by the many different strains of, of ministry upon me, I try to go back to Philippians 3 and remember, starting in verse 12, that not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, okay? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's our prize, friends. That is what we are striving for. Paul said a little bit earlier that the wreath that those athletes in the Ithmian games run for, that wreath is just literally like an olive branch twisted around and made into a temporary crown. And they fought tooth and nail to get that temporary organic piece of material placed on their head so everyone would see that they were the fastest or they jumped the highest or that they got the knockout or that they were the best athlete in their given category. And two years later, somebody else would have that branch on their head. When we think about the things that we strive for in a worldly sense, they are so empty compared to the eternal prize that God has prepared for us, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The more we are trusting in Jesus day by day to live the entirety of our lives in glory to Him, that itself is the prize. Christ is our prize. We run for a crown that does not perish, church. And this is where metaphors are, are never perfect, right? This metaphor is limited in the amount of good that it can do to us because our prize is not even properly a reward. It is a gift, right? We run because the prize has already been promised to us. It has already been won by the effort of another, that being Christ himself. And so do you see how superior this is to the prize that the Isthmian athletes were striving for? And always it is better. Their prize is worthless even if they win. It is a fading crown affirmed by the shaky opinions of people. Literally and figuratively, it will not last. These competitors strive and sacrifice to earn this temporal honor that will likely be shifted off to somebody else in just a short amount of time. But our prize, Christian, is eternal. So how much more should we be disciplined to set aside any weight of sin that would cling closely to us, that would hinder us as we run toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider your life now. Think about the things in your life that might be hindering you from running in the Lord. Do you have a habit or a behavior? Do you have a desire in your heart that often trumps your desire to draw near to Christ? Can you, in honesty to yourself today, identify these things as the kinds of hindrances that would keep you from running freely to your Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? We must be willing to put those things to the side and exercise self-discipline to desire what is truly desirable. In the context of the letter, Paul is challenging these Corinthian brothers and sisters to consider the driving aim of their lives and to see how participation, specifically in those pagan festivals and their accompanying temptations, is completely counter to the goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. 
by making room for this sin in their lives, they're hindering themselves from running well and they're wrecking the testimony that they might use to show others the power and transformational quality of Christ. So what are the characteristics of an undisciplined disciple? Because we see here that if Paul is calling us to better discipline, that means you can be a disciple and not yet be very disciplined, right? Paul offers a couple of examples from which we can draw some conclusions. He says, I'm not like the runner who has no finish line in mind. He just runs and runs, but he doesn't really have an idea where he's going. Have you ever been on a jog somewhere and you got lost? <laughs> you think you're going to take a new track and then suddenly you're like, I don't even know how I got here. And then you're like, oh man, I'm going to have to do so much more work to get back to where I was before. What a waste of time. What a waste of energy. He says, I don't run like that. He says, I don't box like the boxer who strikes out that, at the air but doesn't seem to have a target. And for some of you who are familiar with boxing, he's not talking about shadow boxing here, which is important for your form and trying to make sure that you know how to throw blows. But what he's talking about is somebody who's expending energy, just swinging wildly without really thinking about what he's trying to hit. Both of these worthless activities require effort. A runner's still sweating. He's still exerting himself. He's just not getting anywhere. A boxer who's punching like this is, is going to punch himself out even though he's not hitting anything. The effort of each athlete is an utter waste because neither is focused on a particular goal. Neither is driven to win the prize. The undisciplined disciple approaches his faith so casually, with no real intention for growth, with no drive to get nearer to Christ, with no hunger for the word of the Lord, with no urgency to set aside time in his day for prayer, this is the casual approach to Christ. It is minoring on Jesus. The undisciplined disciple is off and on again about whether he loves the Lord and wants to put him first. There might be little stretches where they, they want to focus on the Lord, but they're very quickly distracted by alternatives. They are quick to jump into a new hobby or a new, new distraction that might keep them from doing what is eternal and has great heavenly value. And these people who are undisciplined in faith, they often are not willing to suffer very much at all for the sake of the cross, even though the Lord God has given us uh, foresight in knowing that if you are calling yourself a Christian, if you are following after Jesus, then you will experience hardship in life. It will not be the easy path to walk this life for the glory of Christ. So when an undisciplined believer encounters challenge, maybe they try to glorify the Lord, maybe they try to be committed to Him, but as soon as something difficult happens, you see them back away. I, uh, that, I, I gave it my best shot, but you know, I'm not willing to deal with that persecution. I'm not willing to risk my place at my job. I'm not willing to risk my reputation with those family members. I'm not willing to risk financial ruin by giving to that mission. I'm not willing to risk. And so they back off. And this even applies to a Christian who might come to church even on Sunday, but not with the goal of discipleship in mind, just because it's, it's what they do. It's Sunday. So you get up and you go to church. It's almost like a little bit of an autopilot that kicks in. You've got your routine down. Not a whole lot of prayer and preparation for what you'll learn. Not a whole lot of expectation that God might confront me this morning or might refine me or grow me or that there might be another brother and sister there at church that God might specifically use me to minister to. If there is no purpose, no meaning behind the devotion, then eventually the activity of gathering with the saints begins to ring hollow. 
people will find themselves missing church because it's not really all that important to them anyway. They might find other things to do on the Lord's Day, and it's very possible that this means of grace becomes marginalized in their lives if they're not focused on truly growing in the Lord when they tap into this means of grace that God has given. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, come to church with the mentality that God is growing you through this time, that he has ordained the body of Christ to gather like this for his glory and for your good. Pray that he will wake you up to something new as you are here or remind you of a thing you have forgotten. Bring your Bible with you, ready to learn. Okay? Expect to use it. Put aside your hindrances. And I'm not talking about your kids. <laughs> your kids are hearing this too. They need to be here as well. And as they hear the word preached, even if they're just catching your commitment to having the family together in worship time, that sends a message to them loud and clear. A beautiful message that this is important. And we will put other things to the side so that we can be together, engaged in this process. Because the Lord is first in our lives. We're not minoring on Christ. Immerse yourself in the life of the body while you're here. I want, let me address our brothers and sisters who are in the fellowship hall or who are outside, who might be connected with us right now online uh, through the live stream. Make every effort to stay connected to the body of Christ here. We wish we had one great big building. We just put everybody in that one big building. But uh, the blessings of the Lord so far give us this place. And it is a little bit on the small side. And as we grow, and praise God, we've been growing. We've been having new families almost every single week. We have to make adjustments. We've got to put people in overflow rooms. But don't let that keep us from being connected to one another. So when the service is done, come back to your brothers and sisters who are in the, in the sanctuary. Come and seek those who are outside, guys. Go out to those who are outside and, and interact with them, fellowship with them. Show them that you care about them and give the Lord opportunities to use you to bless them and to care for them as your family in Christ. So focus your everything on your Savior. It's the aim that is so important to a successful runner, to a boxer. Those who have no formal God, those who are in their own mind gods unto themselves, will be either chronic wanderers, where there is no truth, and so whatever they feel in the moment is what leads them and guides them. Whoever's got the loudest voice, whatever wind of doctrine that comes through will blow them one way or the other day to day. They'll be chronic wanderers, or even worse... They'll be expending every bit of their focus and energy in an effort to win some kind of earthly prize, but will only find that when they reach the end, that there is no prize at all. That the things that they strove for are like dust in the wind. They are a vapor. Apart from Christ, there is only judgment. Only judgment. But if Christ is your king, friends, your life has purpose. It is defined for you. It is not void of meaning or direction or aim. There is eternal implication to everything you do when you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So friends, when we synthesize this with what Paul has already taught in the chapter, we realize that freedom, personal freedom, is not the greatest thing that you can have. In order to get better things than personal freedom, you have to be willing to give up some of your precious freedom. You cannot be totally free and really love anyone else. Because when you care about them, you invest in their good. 
You put your needs to the side so that you might help them and support them and give them strength. You cannot be totally free and love anything. You cannot be totally free and keep a promise. Even the Lord God himself is bound by his own word of promise. Do you see that? God is not totally free that he can do anything he wants because there are several promises he has made and he will surely make sure those things come to pass. He cannot but do otherwise. God is bound by his word. So should we be. Paul uses himself as an example for the Corinthian church to follow. He doesn't run aimlessly. He doesn't box at nothing. He doesn't let his body control him. He controls his body. And the language here is very interesting. He says, I make my body my slave. I buffet my body. Some translations might say he even strikes his body. And what we're reading here is Paul's admonition to self-discipline. It's very common for our minds when we hear self-discipline to go immediately to some of the common practices that the church describes as spiritual disciplines, like prayer, and reading the Bible, humility, acts of service, generosity, meditation. These are all good things that the Word commands us to do. But we would hear this word discipline and we think spiritual disciplines and we might be tempted to take on the mindset that in order to run the race right, that we need to now add a whole bunch of these activities to our lives. These things are not in and of themselves bad things. They are commanded of us. But it would benefit us to be careful about their application. My goal here this morning is not to overburden you with so much busyness that you can't enjoy the God for which you are running and who has promised himself to you now, not at the end, but now. In the last 50 years specifically, there's been a movement called the Spiritual Disciplines Movement that has often been polluted by an unbiblical pursuit of mystical hidden knowledge and personal emotional experiences that are somehow supposed to open our eyes to a higher depth of communion with God. The enemy loves to have a field day with us when we let things that are in and of themselves good become what God did not intend them to be. This is one of the tactics of our enemy Satan as he makes cleverly disguised idols, idols that look like devotion to Christ, might even train our hearts to trust our own strength rather than the strength of our Savior. Uh, just one that I'll call out to you, there's a movement called the Renovari Movement. I didn't put this in your notes. I, I didn't think to. It's R-E-N. O-V-A-R-E. And it is highly championed by a man named Richard Foster. And this Renovari movement claims to help Christians to open themselves up to another level of closeness with Jesus Christ. And it employs some of these good things like, uh, like meditation and prayer and Bible reading. But it does it in such a way that it takes on the flavor of Eastern mysticism. Hinduism and Buddhism. And it encourages Christians to engage in something called contemplative prayer. Now, you might think, what's wrong with contemplative prayer? I contemplate the Lord as I'm praying. Like the words themselves are harmless. But contemplative prayer is a specific type of spiritual discipline prayer invented by this Renovari movement, which is actually tapping into an ancient heretical kind of prayer that was pretty prevalent in the church and damaging to the church hundreds of years ago. It's the idea that we go into a, a state of emptying in our prayers where we listen closely for the word of God and we let his voice lead us in ways that the scripture does not lead us. 
that we get a word from God, a, a premonition from Him, that He gives us direct instruction from above without the guidance of the word to ground us in His holy truth. Where does that often lead people, friends? It often leads people to a dependence upon the emotion and the heart where we start to think that the desires that drive us are actually the voice of the good shepherd when in reality the voice of the good shepherd is right in front of us. We don't need some special encounter with Christ because he has given us this special encounter. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. His word is not only without error, but it is sufficient for us. So when we come along and we invent a new way of approaching Jesus Christ that he has not prescribed for us, what we are doing is we are trying to highlight our own creativity rather than exalt the everlasting command of our God who is always good. So watch out for these things. Do not let these spiritual disciplines drift us into a works understanding of faith. Paul's emphasis here is not a detailed set of exercises designed to level you up as a Christian. His main point is that the believer must remain focused and put aside any hindrance to the race. One final danger to identify here, and that's the danger of disqualification. It says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And when Paul speaks of disciplining his body here, the word that he uses for body is not sarxes, which is the typical Greek word for the flesh. It is the word soma. Soma is a little bit different because soma speaks to the totality of the person, not just the physical part of them. It doesn't just speak to your desires. It speaks to your heart and to your mind and to your understanding. It, it speaks to your whole identity. So Paul's soma is more in line with the English word self. I discipline my whole self. Not just my physical body, independent of mind and soul, I keep my whole self under control to the glory of Christ. So by taking our race seriously, we have not reached the end of what Jesus can do. This is not a relay where Christ has gone and done the hardest stretch of the race and he's gone to the cross and he, he carried that cross up Calvary and he was crucified on our behalf and he did everything that he could do, but now he's like, okay, whew, that was hard. Here's the baton, the rest is up to you. That is not what Paul is talking about here. We have not taken over where Christ has completed. The work is finished, but he is still doing the work in us. Self-control is properly named because it is the self that needs to be brought under control, mind, body, emotion, etc. The self is prone to falling out of proper control, so we are seeking to control the self, but not with our own control. We desire to bring everything under the subjection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Ephesians 1, says, And He, meaning God the Father, put all things, all things, under His, Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So we're not in control of ourselves independent from God. We are in control of ourselves because Christ is controlling us. Galatians 2, verse 19 through 21. For, though, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, in other words, through my efforts and actions, which some people can even start to think of their spiritual disciplines as the way by which they are saved or preserved in Christ. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The use of the word soma works well for Paul in that it accords with this boxing metaphor that he's using. That is why he says that he batters his body or he brings it under subjection. It's different than beating the air. He will use whatever means necessary to whip himself into shape and prevent his flesh from sabotaging him. Like an athlete brings his physical body into subjection, Paul urges that with the power of Christ in whom is our faith and trust, we bring our whole being under the authority of God. So Paul has not denied the Corinthians their right to enjoy the good blessings of life, but has instead urged them to establish a higher priority above personal preference and liberty. Am I, as a Christian, exercising my liberty to the glory of God? Am I, as a Christian, exercising my liberty to the benefit of my neighbor? Someone who says they follow after Christ but continually runs to the arms of sin, continually defends their right to exercise their freedoms in ways that, that are more in line with those things reserved for judgment, with breaking the law of God rather than exalting God. If someone says they belong to Jesus, but their life is continually a pattern of rejecting Jesus and only going to Jesus when they have to, then that person must ask themselves, am I truly believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have my actions proved that I'm disqualified from him, that there is no spirit here because there is no love for me, or in me for the Savior. There is no love in me for the one who gave his life for me. We don't want to get to the end of our lives, friends, and look back and say, I lived a Christian-flavored life, but there was really no Christ in it. It was like tofu. You know, it had the the quality it almost seemed culturally like Christianity, everything that I lived out, all my, all my actions and my words and you know, the ways that I approached life, but there was no love for the Lord there. There was no true devotion to him. Friends, the prize is not a mansion in heaven. The prize is not some sparkling crown in heaven. The prize is Christ. And if that is not good enough for us, if, the, if we don't desire Jesus, are we even in Christ? Or is the truth of our life disqualifying us even as we speak? We must strive to have a sense of God-directed control over our mind, our heart, and our body. And if the prize that is seeing God at work in us as we submit ourselves to his lead and subject ourselves to the kind of life that is befitting a disciple, we need to also be aware that a failure to exhibit discipline can result in a terrifying situation called disqualification. It's not that we lose salvation. It's that we realize that we never gave our lives to him in the first place. And God forbid that would happen to anyone in this room. But God forbid that any of us would also go to the end and stand before the judgment seat of God and say, Lord, 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 did I not prophesy in your name? Didn't I go to all those Christian camps? Didn't I give a, a lot of my resources to you? Didn't I, you know, say those prayers? And I, I think I read through the Bible two times. And did I do all these great things? And then have Jesus Say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. 
That is a stark reality that some will face on those last days if they're not willing to let the word of God rest heavy on their heart. If they're not willing to let the word of God show them who they truly are. Someone who's disqualified is someone not suited for the race, not authorized to participate. No matter how hard they run, their efforts will not count in the standings. They have no eligibility to enjoy the prize that goes to the one who finishes well. Chapter 6, you remember, do not be deceived. Neither idolaters, nor sexually immoral, nor homosexuals, nor violent people, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed clean by the work of Jesus Christ. You were made new. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Made new for him. Not disqualified because our qualifications are no longer found here. They're found on the cross. Christ fulfilled the law and put sin to death so that we might live with him forever. So Paul's not only concerned with his own disqualification, it is his hope that his instructions and warnings will cause the Corinthians to be honest with themselves and to consider whether they too might be in danger. And we see that by the direction the letter begins to take immediately following this warning. As we get into chapter 10, you'll see more of that expanded in his teaching to the Corinthians. So in conclusion, friends, let us turn our attention one more time to the call to worship that we heard earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We chose that scripture on purpose, starting in verse 7. It says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This training that Paul is referring to is not some secret concoction of obscure Bible practices that everyone else has forgotten, but you've been able to figure out like some religious riddle that few can solve. That's not the case. This training is simply committing oneself to living the normal Christian life of everyday faith in Jesus, complete with its challenges, complete with its hardships, complete with your stumbling and your sin and your need to repent to him again and again. To run the race is to love Christ best. It is to bend the knee to him in adoration and worship. It is to maintain a steady diet of his word. It is to seek him regularly in prayer. It is to expect suffering to come to you in the name of Jesus. It is holding together in Christ, despite his suffering, that we find our shelter in him. It is staying connected to God's people, for this is a regular means of grace that he has given to us. It is doing all of this because our prize is fellowship with Christ, and this is how Christ has ordained for us to have fellowship with him. Let's close this time in the word with a brief prayer, and then we're going to transition to celebrating the Lord's table together. Father, we are grateful for your direction and guidance. All things glorify you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use our lives despite their brokenness, despite our weakness, Lord, and our lack of wisdom. We pray that you would use us in a way that you are glorified in us. And Father, may we rejoice in the closeness that we have to you through the sacrifice you have made to wash us clean and redeem us. We pray, Father, that the table would be a blessing to our hearts right now as we remember and stay rooted in your perfect work. It is not our personal discipline and work that saves us. It never will be, Lord God. And so let us rejoice in what you have freely given. We pray for the faith to fairly receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.